So we are in our message series on the life of Jesus. It's the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on the earth teaching about who he is and most importantly what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books that we find in the Bible. They're collectively referred to as the Gospels. And as I said earlier, today we're going to be in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew. And you don't have to agree with everything I say today. We're going to teach what we believe the Bible is saying. And the reason we go through verses one after the other is so that you and I can see in the Bible what it actually says. So it's not me telling you what I think it says, but you can see it for yourself. And if you disagree with what we teach and the conclusions we come to, then I want to encourage you to not just be dismissive, but to go and seek out an answer and understanding for yourself. God is big enough to handle your questions and your doubts as long as you sincerely and actively seek the truth. Don't just dismiss it. Well, last week we saw Jesus begin to be questioned by the religious leaders. Just as the lambs were brought into Jerusalem to be sacrificed on Passover, and they would be inspected for four days before they were sacrificed to make sure there was no blemish or fault in them, our Lord and Savior Jesus was examined for any fault in the four days leading up to his death on the cross. And that's what we saw happening last week, Jesus being examined by the religious leaders. And that's going to continue this week. They're going to try to stump Jesus. They're going to try to bait him into saying something controversial. They're going to try and outwit him and do everything they can to catch him in some sort of moral quandary that will cause him to admit a wrong motivation or a wrong belief. They're going to come at him with ethical, theological, political, and even personal questions. It's going to be high tension, high stakes stuff, and it's going to show us exactly what Jesus is made of and just how brilliant he was and is. So let's jump in. We're going to begin in verse 15, Matthew 22. It says, then the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Luke's gospel tells us that the Pharisees and Herodians sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So the plan is to trip Jesus up in his words, get him to say something ideally anti-Rome so that they can tattle on Jesus to the Romans. The Romans will come and arrest Jesus and solve their Jesus problem for them. So their plan is how are we going to trick Jesus? How are we going to outwit Jesus? It's never a good plan to try and outwit God, but they're going to give it a go anyway. Verse 16, it says, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. So the Pharisees were those who were committed to keeping the minutest aspects of what we know as the Old Testament law. All of God's laws in the Old Testament of the Bible, they were a religious party and their goal was to follow and keep every single law. The Herodians were something completely different. They were a political party made up of Jews, but they believed that partnership with Rome was the best path forward toward Jewish prosperity, politically, religiously, and economically. They basically said, listen, we're not gonna overthrow the Romans, so we might as well make peace with them, be friends with them, figure out how to coexist with them, and that's gonna be the very best thing. And so the Pharisees, who were staunchly pro-Jew, pro-Israel, anti-Rome, the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't have been further apart philosophically and politically. And yet, as it is today, unlikely groups tend to end up on the same side 
in opposition to Jesus. And I've shared this before, but the best example I can give you is the present day love affair our culture has with Islam. Let me explain. You see, you find the same people who are staunch advocates for celebrating the gay lifestyle, bending over backwards to accommodate Islam and make sure nobody ever says a bad word about Islam, even though in countries where there is an Islamic government, they tend to do things like throw people who are gay off buildings and stone them to death. So you look at this and you go, this doesn't make any sense that you're, you're bending over backwards to defend this group. This group throws you off buildings and kills you. It doesn't make any kind of sense. They're diametrically opposed. And so you think, well, how in the world are they on the same side on anything until you realize that both groups are essentially against the church and against Jesus. And that's a common unifying factor. And we recognize that in the entire world, in every issue, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of Satan. And if it's not in one, then it's in the other. And it really is that simple. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, being not for the kingdom of God, both found themselves on the same side under the influence of Satan, being used by Satan. So we have the Pharisees and the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. They don't mean Jesus doesn't care about people. They're just saying, you don't care who has a station or a rank in life. You don't treat rich people better than you treat poor people. You don't place any preference or show anyone any preference based on who they are. You treat all people the same. So they're sucking up to him here. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So this is their prepared question for Jesus. And they were sure that they were gonna trip him up with this one. Because Caesar claimed to be God incarnate. And so the Jews would have felt that if Jesus said, absolutely, we should pay taxes, they would have felt that Jesus was saying, yeah, he should be acknowledged as God. And that would have been blasphemous to a Jew. In fact, the denarius coin, which was about one day's wage for a standard laborer, it had Caesar Tiberius' face on one side and an engraving of him sitting on a throne in priestly robes as God on the other side. And one side would have read Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus, while the other side would have read chief priest. It was outright idolatry to the Jews. Add to that that the heavy taxation Rome placed on the Jews was actually used to fund keeping a Roman army occupying Israel. And the specific tax that's being talked about here, it was called the poll tax. It was a tax assessed by Rome with one simple justification. We own you. Rome owns you Jews. And the Jews viewed themselves as belonging to God, so they especially hated this tax. And if Jesus said, yeah, we should all pay our taxes, the people would have turned against him. However, if Jesus said, don't pay taxes, then they could have tattled on Jesus to the Romans, and Jesus would have been arrested for tax evasion, speaking against Caesar, and inciting political rebellion. So they're thinking, this is great. We've got him over a barrel. We're going to trick Jesus in this situation. Verse 18, here's the problem with trying to do that. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? 
whose image is on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render, that means give back, or it means you owe. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I must have read this interaction a hundred times in my life, and it never ceases to astound me. It is staggeringly brilliant. It is genius. It leaves Jesus' questioners absolutely speechless. In my mind, I imagine that most of the crowd listening in would have involuntarily smiled and just sort of shaken their heads at how brilliant this answer was. And as I unpack this here, I have to point out that Jesus has no issue telling us that, one, we should pay our taxes. If you think being a Christian is going to get you out of paying taxes, you're wrong. Secondly, that we should honor the government that's over us, even if we disagree with their policies. Jesus also says we should obey the laws of our government. Now, obviously, we do those things unless they come into conflict with the word of God, in which case we honor God first. But I notice that Jesus doesn't take an easy opportunity to trash the Romans or Caesar. He could have said, guys, I know, Caesar sucks. The Romans suck. But right now, it is what it is. And we gotta pay our taxes. He doesn't do that. He does the very thing that we're exhorted to do in Romans 12, 18, where the apostle Paul writes, I put it on your outline, if it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You see, even though the Roman government, really get this, the Roman government was totally pagan and totally corrupt. But Jesus doesn't say a bad word about them. Paul would also write, In the first verse of Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Paul is writing that as a citizen of the Roman Empire. The same Roman Empire that would ultimately execute Paul. So Paul is not denying that the Roman government is corrupt, that it's pagan, But he's saying, listen, God is working out a plan across all of time. And even when there are people in offices of political power doing terrible things, something is unfolding. God's still in control. He's over everything and everyone. And our conduct should reflect that belief. Do you know why Saddam Hussein didn't have a problem with Christians? A lot of Christians don't know this. The church actually did very well under Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Doesn't do well anymore under ISIS. But the reason Saddam didn't have a problem with Christians was because they lived out what Paul said. They didn't become a political party. They didn't try to overthrow his government, even though he's a corrupt dictator. They lived peaceably. They followed the law. And so he thought these guys are no problem. In fact, there's places in China right now where Christians are beginning to get more rights and freedoms and it's because slowly the Chinese government is starting to realize that the real sincere Christians aren't trying to overthrow the government. This is how you live when you find yourself under political leadership and rule that you disagree with, that is corrupt, that is pagan. Paul never calls any church to seek regime change. He never calls them to try and lead a political insurrection, but he does use his Roman citizenship to the fullest of his ability. He does his best to create positive change using the benefits his citizenship affords. So should you vote? Absolutely. Should you be an active civil citizen? Absolutely. 
Should you know your rights and freedoms and fight for them? Absolutely. That's a good model for us. It's a simple concept, but it's not easy to do. Make a note of this. Jesus' first coming when he came to the earth as a man was about a spiritual revolution, not a political one. It was about a spiritual revolution, not a political one. And we are not encouraged to seek a political revolution anywhere in scripture. The only political revolution we read about is when Jesus comes back to the earth to rule the earth as the political leader of the earth. So now let's get to the really amazing part of Jesus' answer. And what's so incredible about his answer is what's underneath that message. What Jesus says is not just a way for him to escape their trap. That's not all that's going on. This is the message behind the message. Jesus is saying that coin was made in Caesar's image because it belongs to him. It was made out of gold that actually belongs to him. That coin was made for Caesar. That's why it has its image on it. Man was made in the image of God, imago Dei, because man was ultimately made for God. Man was made to belong to God. I could really close in prayer right there because what Jesus has said is so profound. I'm a preacher, I'm not gonna do that, but I could. So this is what I want you to write down. We were made by God in his image and for him. We were made by God in his image and for him. Jesus is saying, hey, it's Caesar's. If he tells you to give it back, give it back to him. But he's also saying you were made in the image of God. So give yourself to God. I hope you know that you're made in the image of God, that you were made for him, to belong to him. You're not a cosmic accident or the result of the most preposterous game of chance to ever exist. You were made and shaped by God to know him, to belong to him, and to live in a relationship with him. He loves you, and the only reason that we're reading about his time on the earth is because he came here to die for you so that you could have a relationship with him, so that you could spend eternity with him beginning today. I hope you know that you were made in the image of God because you belong to God. That's what you were made for. Verse 22, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Well, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, the Sadducees were another religious slash political group different to the Pharisees in that they believed there was no spiritual realm, no spiritual world, and no afterlife. So they didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in spirits or anything like that. And so even though they were religious, they sort of lived for the moment and lived for today as much as they could because they believed there was no afterlife. They also didn't recognize the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. They only recognized the Torah as being from God, the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this is a very, very different group. So they didn't believe that there was any life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. You'll never forget it. So they came to him and asked him, this is their chance now to inspect Jesus. This is their question that they've come up with. They've been practicing this. And I imagine them coming up and they're sort of like, they're like like giggling and they can't control themselves because they've got such a good question they're gonna stump Jesus with. Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, 
his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So this was an instruction that was given in the law of Moses. This was a law that God gave to Moses to give to the people of Israel. And it was designed to preserve family lines in the event of death. So remember, when Israel reaches the promised land, when they reach Canaan, it was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it was subdivided down to individual families. And so if a male in a family died and there was no living heir, no male heir, there would be nobody to claim that family's piece of land and their right to own that land would be lost forever. So in an example like this one, the dead husband's brother would marry his now widowed wife, his former sister-in-law, and the first male child that they had would take the name of the deceased father and carry on that family line. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? So not only that, but at this time in the world, women weren't allowed to have a job. They weren't allowed to own property, which basically meant that if you ended up a widow without a son who could support you, you were in real trouble financially. Your son was your social security. Jesus took care of his mother Mary after Joseph, his earthly father, died. That's why on the cross, Jesus says to John, John, behold your mother. He's telling John the apostle, John, I am now tasking you with taking care of my mother because I'm not gonna be around to do that. This law was a means to make sure that a widow didn't end up on the street, even though it obviously made for some very, very awkward situations, you know. I've always thought you were good looking and here we are. Things really have a way of working out, former sister-in-law. I mean, it would be a little bit weird and if it sounds archaic, just don't forget, it wasn't that long ago that if you were a woman, you couldn't buy a car unless your husband co-signed. Don't put your hand up if you're old enough to remember that. You're gonna give your age away here. But I hear that was a thing years and years before I was born. Well, the Sadducees' hypothetical scenario continues and they say, okay, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third. I mean, at this point, it's clearly the wife poisoning them or something like that. But anyway, even to the seventh, and then you know you're wrong because it says, last of all, the woman died also. So here's their genius question for Jesus. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. You know, I'm glad they asked this question because it comes up a lot on the connection cards that we fill out every week. So I'm just glad to have the chance to address it because I know this is something a lot of you are wrestling with. So you see, the Sadducees don't believe in any kind of afterlife. And this is their ridiculous attempt to say, you see, Jesus, there can't be an afterlife because there would be so many problems and issues with that. Here, here's just one example of an unsolvable problem that would occur if there's an afterlife. <laughs> Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. That's a really classy way of saying, you clowns. You clowns, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Guys, newsflash, in heaven things are different to how they are on earth. Who would have thunk it? He says there's no need for marriage in heaven. You see, marriage was designed by God to provide us with companionship, a better understanding of God, 
a way to become more like Jesus, and a way to produce children. None of those things are needed in heaven. Instead, we'll enjoy perfect spiritual relationships with everyone. We'll be like the angels in the sense that angels are eternal beings who don't need to procreate or marry. So please understand this. If your immediate thought was, and I know it was, but what about, and then you thought of something you'd miss about being married, like the woman were like conversation and, and men were something else. Just know that whatever need or desire that aspect of marriage fulfills for you now, heaven will meet that need or desire a trillion times over in a way that's a trillion times better. And if you're a dude who's thinking there's no way, first of all, you think way too much of yourself. Second of all, you're just underestimating the goodness of God. Whatever it is, heaven will be better. Heaven will be better. Let me just move right along here. Verse 31, Jesus says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? See, Luke's gospel makes this a little bit clearer. Let me read it to you from Luke. It says, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So here's the deal. When God shows up to Moses, Moses has sort of run for his life out of Egypt after killing an Egyptian. He's living as a sheep farmer with some relatives at this time. And God, Jesus, shows up in a bush, the bush is on fire but it's not being burned up and he has an encounter with God. And here's what Jesus is saying, hey, hey, remember when that happened, you guys? And by the way, it happened in Exodus which is in the Torah which is part of what the Sadducees recognized as being scripture from God, they recognized that. So Jesus says, remember what God said? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus is saying, God in the burning bush used the present tense. And he did that because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not dust in the ground at that moment. Their spirits were still very much alive because there's an afterlife. He was as much their God then as he was when they were alive on the earth. And he's pointing this out to the Sadducees because remember, they don't believe in any kind of afterlife. And what Jesus is saying is, oh, you don't believe in the rest of the Old Testament? No problem, I'll go to the Torah and I'll show you the afterlife is real. And then he says, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, all who place their trust in God are living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Because you see, even for the Pharisees, they had a very, very hard time proving any type of spiritual dimension or afterlife from the Torah. There were lots of places they could find in the rest of the scriptures, the Psalms, the prophets, things like that, to prove an afterlife, but they hadn't really figured out a way to prove an afterlife to the Sadducees using just the Torah. Jesus just did that, people are blown away. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and then one of them, a lawyer, that actually just means a scribe, it was someone whose job it was to interpret the scriptures, to read the scriptures and then tell people what it meant to practically apply that scripture to life. So one of them, a scribe, asked him, Jesus, a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
So the scribes had gone through the entire Old Testament and had figured out there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. 248 were things we should do. 365 were things we should not do. And they'd also divided the laws into heavy and light categories so that you could know that it was more important to do the heavy things than it was to do the light things. As for which commands were heavy and which were light, well that's where different rabbis, different teachers and different scribes had different interpretations and views. All Jews were generally aware of which command was the most important. We'll get there in a moment. And so what they were really asking Jesus was, of the 613 commands in the scriptures, what's the second most important? What's the second heaviest command? What's your unique take on that? What's your view? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, should underline the rest of this here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then underline, this is the first and great command. Jesus references the great command of Deuteronomy 6 in the Torah, known as the Shema. The word Shema is Hebrew for the word hear, and the Shema actually begins with the phrase, hear, O Israel. And so this is the, the core part of what the Shema is. It says what Jesus just did, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Jews knew this was the great commandment. Pious Jews would recite it every evening and every morning. Orthodox Jews would write it out and put it in small elongated boxes that they would fasten to their front doorposts and they would kiss it every time they came in and out of their house. Those are called mezuzahs. They still do that in Israel. They wrote out the Shema and put it in leather pouches that they wore on their foreheads called phylacteries. Everyone, including Jesus, is on the same page that the Shema is the great command. So the real question is, what's the second most? This is where Jesus would really distinguish who he was as a teacher, what he believed was the second most important command. Verse 39, he goes on and says, and the second is like it, underline the second is like it, and then underline, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when Jesus says the second is like it, he's saying the second most important command is linked to the first. The second is like it. And write this down. Jesus is saying loving people is connected to loving God. Loving people is connected to loving God. And that belief, that idea, that perspective is so radically different from our culture. You see, our culture teaches and believes that before you can love others, you must first learn to love yourself. What Jesus is saying is that when you love yourself above everything else, you're going to inevitably be disappointed with yourself. The solution Jesus proposes is loving God above everything else and never being disappointed. But why do we love God? The apostle John tells us, I put it on your outlines, we love him because he first loved us. He first loved us. It's not that you need to love yourself before you can love others. It's that you need to realize you are loved before you can love others. And then I wanna ask you to make a note of this. We cannot truly love others without first experiencing love ourselves. We cannot truly love others without first experiencing love ourselves. You can't teach people a lesson that you've never learned. 
You can't pass on love to somebody else if you don't know what love is. It has to be experienced before you can share it with somebody else. And God is love. That's how he described himself in the Bible. God is love. He's the definition of love. And if you really want to know what it means to love, you need to first experience what it means to be loved. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to love somebody else truly. When you understand that you were created by Jesus, that you have a Father in heaven who loves you, that you have a Savior who bled and died for you because he loves you so much and he wanted you in his family. And when you understand that there's nothing you could do to make that same God love you any more than he does right now, that's when you really start to learn what love is. We love him because he first loved us. In the very next two verses of 1 John 4, the apostle John goes on after that to say, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You see, loving your brother, loving other people is not dependent on loving yourself, it's dependent on loving God. It's a byproduct of loving God and being loved by God. Furthermore, loving your brother is not even dependent on your brother, it's dependent on loving God. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 5? He said, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? What's so great about that? That's what Jesus is saying. If you love those who already love you, there's nothing special about that. He says, don't even the tax collectors, so he's saying, don't even the worst sinners do the same thing? If you greet your brethren, your friends only, what do you do more than others? Nothing special about that. Do not even the tax collectors, the actual word there is Gentiles, do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect. You'll do more than that. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You will love more than that. Just as your Father in heaven loved more than that. Jesus makes it clear that when he's talking about your brother, your neighbor, he's talking about everybody. And the justification he gives, his explanation for why he can ask us to love in such an outrageous way is that our heavenly father loved everybody. Not just those who loved him in return. Christ died once for some, says the word, all. Died once for all, even those who will never receive him, never acknowledge him, never love him in return. Loving your brother is not dependent on loving yourself, it's dependent on loving God. Loving your brother is not dependent on your brother, it's dependent on loving God. What's the greatest command? Love God. What's the second greatest command? It's linked to the first, love people. And then in verse 40, Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of those Old Testament laws, all 613, the 10 commandments, all of them come down to these two things, love God, love people. In fact, the first four of the 10 commandments involve loving God and the back six involve loving people. Jesus is saying, if you wanna know the heart of God's law, if you wanna know what it's all about, it's all about this, sum it up in one word, it's about love. So write that down, the heart of God's law is love and that's coming from the mouth of Jesus. The heart of God's law is love. 
But here's what we know about God's law. None of us have ever lived up to it. None of us have perfectly fulfilled it. None of us have perfectly loved God and loved people. None of us. So Jesus became not only the word made flesh, he became love made flesh. The one who's the very definition of love came to the earth to do what we could not do, to fulfill the law and the prophets and then hang on the cross in the greatest act of love the world has ever seen and ever will see to die for our sinful failure to meet God's perfect standard of love. The law and the prophets do and did all hang on love, on love itself, Jesus Christ. Just as a quick aside, let me just share one interesting thing I came across as I was studying for this. It's an interesting fact about the Quran. Did you know that the Quran does not contain even one single command to love anything or anyone, but it contains over a hundred commands to execute and kill non-believers? I share that because you're never gonna see that on the news, but it's a true fact. You can get a Quran if you want to and check it out for yourself, but that's a fact. God is love, Jesus is love. And I just wanna add some detail from this conversation that Mark's gospel records for us, because I think it's worth mentioning. I'll just read it to you, you don't need to turn there. In Mark's gospel, it goes on to say, so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus, what you've said is true. God desires love more than rituals and religion. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. And personally in that, I just see the grace of the Father because as Jesus is preparing to lay down his life for humanity, just, just imagine this, he's preparing to die for people and he's spending some of his last few days before that being grilled by people who don't believe he's the son of God, who think he's nothing, who hate him and wanna see him fall and wanna see him murdered. That's who Jesus is dying for. It had to be very difficult and yet in the middle of all this, I see the, the hand of Jesus' heavenly father causing the scribe who asked him this question to clearly be somebody who's actually open to the truth. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, the way you're thinking, the way you're listening. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And we don't know, but I would not be surprised to learn that that scribe was one of the religious leaders who actually gave his life to follow Jesus, probably at some point following the resurrection of Jesus. And our heavenly father has a way when the pressure is mounting, when the stress is rising, when the difficulties seem to be too much, he has a way of sending a word of encouragement at just the right time. And I think that's what he was doing for his son Jesus in that moment. If that's where you're at, just stay faithful, stay obedient, stay in the Father's will. He knows what you need, even down to the smallest encouragement, and he'll make sure you get it at the moment you need it the most. Well, now Jesus is going to ask the Pharisees a question. And unsurprisingly, they're not gonna be able to answer. And with just one question, Jesus is going to expose the truth that these men are not qualified to ask him questions about the scriptures. They've got no business interrogating him. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, well, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? 
whose son is he? And they said to him, oh, the son of David. See, in this time, they didn't have terms like grandson or great-grandson. So what they would do is they would just call themselves a son of, and then they would list their greatest descendant, their most famous or well-known person in their family line. So if that for you, if you were a descendant of Alexander Graham Bell, you would be, I'm a son of Alexander Graham Bell, even though we may have been generations and generations ago. That's why the Jews love to identify themselves as sons of Abraham. And it was known and understood from prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures that when Messiah, when the Savior came, he would come in the family line of David. He would be a son of David. That's what that phrase means. But by using that term, they were also revealing to us and to Jesus their belief that Messiah would simply be a man sent by God and nothing more. He'd be a political leader or and a prophet, but but he'd be just a man born in the family line of David. And so Jesus says, okay guys, if Messiah will be just a man who comes from the family line of David, now verse 43, how then does David in the spirit, and that Jesus is gonna quote something that David wrote in a psalm, but he's saying even though David wrote this, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, and now he quotes David from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord. So let me explain this, just hang with me. In the original Hebrew, the first Lord that appears there is the word Yahweh, while the second Lord is another title for God. So you've got God talking to God, and what you find out is that David is actually picturing in his mind a conversation taking place between God the Father and Messiah. It's Jesus. David didn't know it was Jesus. He was living hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. But he's picturing his Lord, the Lord, God the Father, speaking with his Lord, David's Savior, Messiah. He's picturing God the Father talking to Messiah. So before we go any further, write this down so that you can stay with me. The first Lord is the Father. The second Lord is Messiah slash Jesus. The first Lord is the Father. second Lord is Messiah slash Jesus. So David is picturing God the Father having a conversation and speaking to Messiah. And this is what David writes in Psalm 110. He sees the Father saying to Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so now Jesus says to the Pharisees, if David calls him, if David calls Messiah Lord, how is he his son? So here's the point Jesus is making. He's saying, guys, No father will ever call his son, his grandson, his great-grandson, his great-great-grandson, God, Lord. Nobody does that. So if Messiah is just a man in the line of David, why does David, in this vision, call him Lord, call him God? The only explanation is that the person David is seeing in this vision is more than a man, is more than a man. He is both God in the flesh and a man. He's both, David's recognizing his divinity. If their hearts and minds had been open, the point Jesus is making would have caused them to realize that Messiah would be much more than a political leader or a religious teacher. He'd be God in the flesh, God in the body of a man, the very one standing before them. Verse 46, 
And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. How heartbreaking. Because Jesus absolutely stumps them with the truth. But they don't say, wow, we we need to change our perspective. We've got to reevaluate our position on everything, on, on who you are, Jesus. No, they just sort of slink away saying, well, you win this one, Jesus. And it all comes down to the issue of pride. Sometimes the truth can be revealed to us, but it would be too embarrassing for us to admit that we were wrong. And for a lot of people, I believe, sometimes they see the truth, God shows them the truth, but they're unwilling to go through the embarrassment of having to change their life and tell their friends, yeah, I know I didn't believe in God, but something has happened and I've changed. Really? I thought you'd never fall for that nonsense. And sometimes people know something is true, but they're simply not willing to go through the embarrassment of honestly admitting that they were previously wrong, and that's what's happening here. And I don't think we grasp how how tense these exchanges would have been, because these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees, these are guys whose whole position in life, whose whole social standing is built upon the idea that they're the religious experts. They're the gurus. They're the spiritual guys. They're the authority on the Bible. And so to have Jesus intellectually, theologically lay them to waste with a question that they can't even answer would have been incredibly awkward and great entertainment if you weren't directly involved in the interaction. And it's why we read at the end, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. You see, it wasn't that they realized we can't ask him questions, he's the son of God. It wasn't that. It was that they were simply unwilling to be embarrassed any further by the brilliance of Jesus. And with that, the inspection of the Lamb of God was complete. He's kosher, he's clean, he's pure, he's holy. He's the only man who ever was and ever will be pure enough to die as an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, yours and mine. The Lamb of God who came to be slain and would be in just a few days from this time. Just to give you a heads up, next time we're in this series, we're gonna be going through some comments Jesus has for the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's heavy, it's hardcore. We'll go through the famous interaction Jesus has called the widow's might. And then right after that, just two messages from now, we're gonna begin what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Next time we're in this series, it'll be Jesus' last public message. Then he takes his disciples out on the Mount of Olives and spends several chapters talking with them about the end of the world, about the end times. It's earth-shattering, mind-blowing stuff, and you're gonna wanna make sure that you don't miss that, and we're almost there. But I wanna wrap up today by reminding you of two things, your relationship with God and your relationship with others. You were made in the image of God. You were made by God and for God. And so you'll never find that sense of home, that sense of belonging, that that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning anywhere else other than in a relationship with God. You were made for that. You were made for that. It's been well said there's a God-shaped hole in every person because we were made for God. So give yourself to God. 
all of yourself to God. It's what you were made for. And secondly, remember, you can't truly love others until you've experienced what love truly is. And Jesus is the only one who can give you that. Loving others is not about learning to love yourself. It's about learning that you are loved and you were loved before you were even born. It's about throwing yourself into a relationship with God and experiencing the kind of love that no other person can ever offer you. And then from that, learning what it means to love other people. And so if you're in a place today where maybe you're in some sort of relationship crisis, in a marriage or whatever relationship you're in, or maybe relationships just seem like a code you just can't crack, I want to encourage you to stop trying to fix the other person or fix yourself, but to throw yourself into a relationship with Jesus and encounter his love and be overwhelmed by the fact that he loves you. He just loves you. There's nothing you could do to make him love you more than he does today. And there's nothing you could do to make him love you less. Nothing. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, Thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that we don't have to wonder why we're here, what life is all about, what it's all for. We know that we were made by you and we were made for you. And so everything that we seek in life cannot be found anywhere else other than in you. Lord, even the relationships that we desire to have with other people, the marriage, the friendships. Lord, the key to those is you experiencing what it means to be loved by you, the very definition of love. And so, Father, help us just to bask in the glorious truth that you love us this morning. Help us to slow down and say thank you. And I pray in the name of Jesus for everyone in here who feels like they've never experienced what it's like to be loved by you. I pray for anyone here who feels like it's just been so long they can't remember what that feels like. Father, would you just pour upon them to the point of overflowing the glorious truth that you love them, the realization that you love them. May it become real in a way it's never been before. May every shred of doubt be removed in the name of Jesus. May the love that you showed for us on the cross be more real than it's ever been before. And Father, out of the truth that you loved us first, would you help us to love others? Our brother, our sister, our neighbor. To show that the love that you've poured out on us is real by being willing to extend it to the people that you've put around us in our lives. We love you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.